My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I want to just take a moment to invite the mass exodus of Hubtown Kids. Um, if you are uh, ages uh, three to five, you're going to go to the Blue Station over here. If you're uh, ages six up to fifth grade, you're going to go this way, and there'll be a great rumbling and murmuring amongst the people. Just for a moment. Now, if you're tempted to leave uh, and you're not in those ages, then you should just stay there. I know who you are. This morning, the Gray Station. I want to talk about what the Gray Station is going to be learning about this morning. We're going to be asking this question, what does the law of God require? What does the law of God require? Well, here's the answer that they're going to be hearing, and those that are sitting on, uh, they'll, get, they'll get it here now before they enter their class. But here's what the law of God requires, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let me say that again. This is a great sermon to preach. Maybe I can if you were patient. It is Easter after all. I could preach the other one that I've prepared. What does the law of God require? That we love God with all of our heart, strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, we say this often, and I hope you don't get tired of it. It's not my job to raise your kids. It's your job. And yet God, in his sovereignty and in his kindness, has called us to encourage and help one another. And one of the ways that we can is by having things like this, Hubtown Kids, and asking them questions. Maybe at life group, maybe at a picnic, maybe as you visit them at their baseball game. Remember, what does the law of God require? And if you need a little bit of help with figuring that out, you can make sure to check out our loop, which you got when you first came in. The question is printed there every week for the Grace Station, and so make sure that you check that out. Again, it's so good to be with you this morning and to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. I want to just say again, welcome and happy Easter. I'm thankful to share from God's Word with you this morning. It is my privilege to often do that. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. If you're new around here, let me just say this. We use book Bible and we walk through verse by verse. And, and by God's providence, we've landed this morning in Mark chapter 16, where Mark records for us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Come and see the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. 
And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless it together. Father, again, we just pause, recognizing that we in and of ourselves can do nothing. It's only by the power of your word and the hands of your spirit applied to our cold hearts that we truly can be revived, encouraged, convicted. So, Father, we ask that you do the thing that you wish to do in and through us as a result of us taking a look at your holy scriptures. And we trust that as we do, Jesus will become more precious to us. And the things of this earth will indeed grow strangely dim. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. It's Easter 2022. And on this day that we remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I want to ask you a question. What is so special about Jesus? What is so special? Hey, save it for the end. Just kidding. (laughs) What is so special about Jesus? Well, generally at this point in the sermon, having just read the scripture, I would try to, in some sort of a didactic way, give you the main idea that I think is rising to the top of the text. And I would work then to establish that, but instead of giving you the main idea, I just want to posit this question in your minds. Truly, what is so special about Jesus? And I recognize that in this room there are people from all different walks of life, different places in the glo- on the globe even. And as it relates to Jesus landing in different places as well. So some of you may be flustered in your heart that I would even ask such a question. What's so special about Jesus? Others are relieved perhaps, maybe even relishing in the fact that I have asked such a progressive question and such a conservative building. And regardless of where you stand, it's a pertinent question for us this morning. Here we have a man who has rearranged the entire course of human history in such a way that makes even the greatest conquerors in our history books, our heroes and heroines, they all in his shadow languish in forgotten history. He's an incredible figure. But what is it about Jesus that makes him so special? Maybe this morning you would offer, well, he was so moral. He was a moral man. And so because of his morality, he's changed and done all of these things, and the course of history has been rerouted and corrected. Maybe to that response, you in your mind are thinking, well, many people have seemingly lived moral and even decent lives, and that would be true to some degree. Others of you would say, well, Jesus is special, and here's why he's special, because he was crucified. And then maybe as you read the gospel account, you'd realize, well, He wasn't the first, nor was he the last to be crucified. And so maybe you've been raised in church, and so you're asking, well, what is it that's so special about Jesus? If his crucifixion is so special and we wear it on our necks and we put signs up all over the building, what is so special about the cross of Christ? What's so special about Jesus? Maybe then others would say, well, he's given his life for many as a sacrificial offering. He laid it down on behalf of others. And some of you veterans would even say, well, I have had dear friends that I've remembered and celebrated that have laid their lives down for others. And so is Jesus so special that he would sacrifice his life, much like somebody else would, jumping on a grenade, 
stepping in front of a bullet. Literally thousands have given their lives for us as Americans here in this state. And so in what way is Jesus' sacrifice better than theirs? In case you're too concerned, I believe it is different. And I believe that Jesus is special, but still, why? In what way? Maybe you would say this morning, well, Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. He's risen. And that's what's so special about him. Well, I would say to you, he's not the first. He's not the first to be raised from the dead. And so whether you're a long-time believer or this morning you are a skeptic, you would have to agree that in these ways, Jesus may not appear to be so special. And so yet, Christians believe that he is. And in fact, he is. But again, what is it that is so special about Jesus? I would offer you this morning that our text answers this question, but really only in part and finally. And so that's why we'll save this idea that Jesus is risen until the end of the sermon, just for rhetorical uh, uh, flair. While we'll never truly be able to, in this life, exhaust the answer, what is it that makes Jesus so special? I want to work this morning to help us to, in a satisfactory way, establish and answer this question. In order to do so, I want to take you back to where we first began our study of the gospel of Mark. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn back to Mark chapter 1? And as you do, let me just say this. I intend to show you three facts. Beginning in Mark, jumping to the other places throughout Scripture, three facts that establish Jesus' unique place in human history. What is so special about Jesus? Why has he been given such a unique place in human history? First, let me say, he was without sin. He was, in fact, without sin. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's baptized by John. John uh, Mark chapter 1 records that for us. And as Jesus is being baptized by John the baptizer there in the Jordan River, there's a voice that booms from heaven, and what does it say? It's God himself, God the Father, speaking of the second person in the Trinity, and he says of him, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This sort of language that's been given to Jesus by the Father has never been heard before, and it won't be heard again until those who are in Christ stand before him. And he says of those who are in Christ, with us. He is also well pleased. You might think, well, maybe Jesus is just getting what God often passes out to those whom he cares for and those whom he feels sorry for. Much like we might say, I'm really pleased with you and I really like you. And in your deep depths of your heart, you're thinking, well, not really. I'm not terribly pleased with you, but I can bear you. This is not what's taking place here. God the Father looks upon his Son the life that he has lived, the 33 perfect years, at this point 30, and he says, you are my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. Jesus pleased the Father. How did he do such a thing? He did so by following the Father's laws perfectly. A moment ago, I asked you a question, what does the law of God require? What does the Father require? require of us. 
that we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's pretty exhaustive. And on top of that, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you understand that Jesus, here standing in the water, coming up out of baptism, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and the Father's voice booms over him, I am pleased with you and why? Because he had fully obeyed the law of God. Our lives are crammed with temptations. Jesus was no different. His life was also packed full with temptation. And to help us understand that, Mark records for us a book and set on Jesus' life. This set is temptation. At the beginning of his ministry, upon his baptism, what, is, what happens to Jesus? Well, he's ushered out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan himself for 40 days and for 40 nights. And what does Jesus do in the face of temptation? He stands firm. He stands resolute, not turning to the left or to the right, not disobeying the express commands of God the Father that had been given to Jesus himself. No, he stands resolute. And then, again in the garden, at the end of his ministry, the night that he's arrested, there on Thursday evening, what happens in Mark chapter 14? He instructs his disciples in verse 34, hey, stay here and pray. Stay here and watch. He tells the inner three, the circle, the the inner circle there. He says, "My, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed himself, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The parallel between the temptation there in the wilderness and the temptation in the garden is incredible. And yet we know that Jesus does not stray one bit. But he continues to love the Father, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he continues to love his neighbor as himself. And so when we consider Jesus coming up out of the Jordan River on, upon his baptism and the Father booming down, looking back over the, the, what he had accomplished in the last 30 years, looking forward to what he will accomplish, what does the Father say? Backwards and forwards, I am pleased with you, my son. Jesus is sinless. That's the first fact that I offer you this morning. What is so special about Jesus is that he is sinless. The Apostle Paul makes this Christological point crystal clear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, what a great text to meditate on, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I encourage you to memorize that. Write that down in, in your Bible, in your notes that you're taking now. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made Jesus, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, this one who knew no sin, and to what end? So that in Christ, the church might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he, the Father, made Jesus to be sin. He, in a sense, became sin himself. 
there on the cross, indistinguishable from our sin that he was bearing and his own person. And the irony is he knew no sin. And why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what makes Jesus so special? He's the only person in the history of the world that has never broken God's law. And we could stop right there. There's much more to be said about the unique role that Jesus has in human history. And yet we won't. We'll move on. He's the only one to have never committed one single offense against God or fellow man, completely innocent. When you think about your own life or when you think about the life of Jesus and the level of guilt against the level of punishment, Jesus has the most disparate values. Here's what I mean by that. You say, well, I've experienced more than my share of what I really think I deserve, and that may or may not be true. But when you consider Jesus and what he experienced versus what he deserved, the values are so different. Sin is breaking God's law, and Jesus never broke one of them. And yet if we could take just a few moments to walk through God's laws, even just meditating on what God requires of each of us, it wouldn't take long before all of us realize that we are sinful. There's not one of us who can say that we have not sinned against God, that we have not broken one of his commands. There's none of us that are better than the other. By that same logic, there there are some that are worse, but none of us are perfect. You think about this idea, this picture. Last week we saw three men hung on crosses all in a row. The one on the left and the right, both sinful and deserving death. And at the same time, railing against Jesus. And yet we saw something unique take place in the life of one of those thieves. The Spirit of God broke his heart. And he began to see Jesus the way that the Father sees Jesus. And in that moment, he corrected the other and said, this man has done nothing wrong. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't walk with him. He'd not heard this sermon before. The Spirit of God opened his eyes. He could see in that moment that this man has done nothing wrong. In contrast, that man said to the other, and here we are hanging on the cross deserving exactly what we're getting What was it that saved the man? He was, in fact, saved. Jesus invited him to be in the kingdom, which he was that day. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And what was it? Was it that one had sinned less than the other? Maybe. But that's not why he received the mercy that Jesus extended to him that day. It's because he admitted that he was sinful while seeing that Jesus was not. Before we move on, I want to just take a moment and ask you, when you look at Jesus, do you see the sinless Son of God as the Father sees him? Or do you see him as just another good man, one who had his flaws, who lived and died and got what was coming to him, and life went on? 
I pray that this morning the Spirit of God would open, perhaps for the first time, the beauty of Jesus in his sinless life. And at the same time, I would ask you this morning, do you see your own life and your own sin? Are you willing, are you even able to admit this morning, maybe again for the first time, that you have indeed sinned? When you contrast your own life with Jesus who fully obeyed the Father, what do you see? The good news of Jesus Christ this morning is that no matter how sinful you are, God will forgive you in Jesus Christ. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how bad it is, God will in fact forgive you in Jesus Christ. And so what's so special about Jesus? He was sinless. But also, notice this, he satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath. The truth of the matter is that all will be judged by God. There will never be a sin committed in the history of the world that will not be paid for in some sense by someone. You cannot commit rebellion against an infinite being and it go unpunished. The Bible uses the language wrath of God. That's upon each of us that sin against him. All the rebels of God will get the wrath of God. Now the wrath of God is not like the wrath of mom. The wrath of God is not like the wrath of Khan. God's wrath is not out of control. It's not emotionally driven. Not to say that moms or Khan were... But oftentimes when we think in a human way about the wrath of somebody, it's out of control, it's emotionally driven, it's over the top. And yet when the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, it's calculated, it's precise, it's perfect, it's holy, it's never too much, and friends, it's never too little. The wrath of God is a beautiful and glorious truth. The soul that sins, it shall die. He does not wink at our sin. And so with that in mind, as we consider the sinless life of Jesus that made him so special, we also consider that he satisfied God's wrath. Now you might be asking, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so if Jesus was sinless, why is God's wrath upon him? Well, you've asked a wonderful question. And as a pastor, I can't wait to answer that for you. The Bible tells us that each of us earned death because we have sinned. And that's the bad news part of the good news that I'm about to share. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. If, you, if you're with me in Mark, would you turn there? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He's teaching them about the nature of the kingdom. And they're jostling back and forth, trying to get positioned there in the kingdom of God that they see their Lord establishing. What does Jesus say to them? He begins to instruct them, hey, the first will be last, the last will be first. And he goes on to say, listen, if you want to serve, if you want to be served, then you need to serve. If you want to be part of this kingdom, you, you've got to serve. And he says, it's not just you guys doing that and me over here just being served. He says, no, it's the opposite. It starts with me. 
Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but he came to serve. He goes on to tell his disciples, hey, you're, you're wanting to be top dog. You're wanting to be ever, have everybody serve you, and you give the orders and just point and grunt and things get done. He says, no, that's not how it works. In the kingdom of God, you're going you're gonna to be just like me. You're going to serve and not be served. And Jesus punctuates that teaching by saying, the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life as a ransom for many. Good Friday, we gathered here in this place and we considered this truth that Jesus gave his life so that the doors of the heaven, the doors of the kingdom of God could be opened to us. That's what he's referencing here. Jesus gave his own life on the cross to pay the debt of sin that he didn't owe, but you did. And in order to serve you in that way, he gave his life as a ransom to purchase you back. Speaking along those same lines, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he says in chapter 43, I'm sorry, 53, verses 4 through 6, surely he Speaking of the coming Messiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But in contrast to what you assumed about him, he was actually pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We, church, are healed. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what's happening on the cross as Jesus dies? He is being flooded with the sins of his people. The wrath of God against the sin of his people was not on the people, but in this moment it was transferred to Jesus. And as he swarmed with our sin, crushed with our iniquities, he gives up his life. The wrath of God poured out on him, precise, not an extra bit, not too little, precisely. Here again, though this may seem so elementary for us. This is where we see Jesus being unique. This is where we see him being different yet again. You see, many have sinned against God and will be punished for their sin. There is not one person that will escape the wrath of God save those in Jesus Christ. They will experience the wrath of God. They'll be punished for their sins. And Jesus, having never sinned, has taken upon himself the sins of those who will come to him for salvation, which, by the way, included the centurion there at his feet and one of the thieves on either side. And though Jesus never sinned, though he didn't deserve God's wrath, he took all the wrath of God for us on himself. 
So now, again, consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You should think about the wrath of God, the hatred of God toward sin. I want you to think about this. Consider Jesus' ability to fully comprehend the odious nature of our sin. Think about that. You know, each of us, we know that things are wrong in this world. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are about how we got here or who Jesus is. You look at this world and you say, this place is broken. And people are wicked. Each of us find ourselves at varying degrees of that realization. And you may understand in some small way how broken this place truly is, how wicked we really are, how depraved this people has become. But think of this. Jesus, having never contributed to the sin of the world, feels the mass of all of that sin, and he bears it on himself. I'm going to try to further establish what I'm trying to to get at here. Because of Jesus' impeccable character, because of his divine nature, he possessed a heightened awareness of pain in connection with evil. Think of it in terms of a man with perfect hearing. Not just perfect human hearing, but able to hear all sounds that have ever been made. Jesus, in a sense, is able to hear them while we are unable whether it be the frequency of a dog whistle or maybe now in our older age, the whispers of our wives. We've lost the ability to hear certain things. When it comes to Jesus and sin, he hears everything. He hears the low whispers of wickedness. He hears the high shrieking pierces of rebellion each and every bit. He's not forgotten. He's not just concerned for the Father who's, con- who's frustrated and angry towards sin and measuring out that, him- that, that, sin- that wrath. He himself, who bears that sin on his own person, recognizes and feels the weight of it in a way that you never will. I've heard the testimony of many of you when As you were along your way, the Spirit of God convicted you of sin. And he gave you a small understanding of how wicked your heart was towards him. And he began to change you. And you say, I couldn't believe how sinful I was. Brother and sister, let let me share with you. You still, even at this moment, don't truly feel the weight of your sin against God. And you say, I'm not that bad of a person. It doesn't matter. That's the point I'm making. You can't even see or feel the weight of your own sin. And so moving from metaphor to metaphor, from hearing to strength, some of you know what it feels like to lift 40 pounds. You know, you've lifted it before. And some of you maybe even right now are wrestling a toddler about that weight. And you say, oh, I know what what that feels like. 
And some of the strong ones in the room are thinking, hey, I know what 40 pounds feels like, and I know what 200 pounds feels like. Laying on my back with a bar across my chest, I can lift that 200 pounds. And good for you. You perform pull-ups and deadlifts and bench press, and you lift cars and, and small trains and things like that. You've experienced all of the weight of these things, but let me share with you, you do not know what 4,000 pounds feels like. There's not one of us here. You don't know what 10,000 pounds feels like. You might know what 40 feels like. You might know what 200, but you don't know 100,000 pounds. And yet it's a real weight. It really exists, and you can't experience it. And yet God, he can. And God the Son, he did. And as he was on the cross, he felt the weight of every single bit crushing down on him. And so you may be able to understand weight in a logical sense, but you can't in a judicial or experiential sense, and Jesus has and can. He knows the full weight of God's wrath against sin, and it was upon him. Isaiah 53, again, surely he has borne our griefs, the ones we didn't even know how heavy they were. He picked them up, the Father did, and placed them on the Son, and he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. Listen, he was crushed. It's the language of weight and heaviness. He was crushed as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It will literally take an eternity for any one individual to satisfy the wrath of God for your, for your sins alone. Think of that. It takes an eternity of suffering and of punishment, for you to pay for the, your own sins. But what's so special about Jesus? Well, he satisfied the wrath of God once and for all at one time. And when he had satisfied, when he had exhausted the wrath of God, when he had atoned for the iniquity of his church, he declared what? It is finished. Not an eternity Three days, and partial days at that. So when you think of the work of Christ and you say, what is so special? Let me say this. There's nothing more to be paid for. Every sin of those who will turn to Jesus, it's been covered. And not only has he suffered the wrath of God the Father, but he has extinguished it. He didn't just drink of the cup. He didn't just taste of the cup. The cup that he prayed in the garden that would pass from him. No, he didn't just taste it. He drank it all. He drank it all. The wrath of God against all those who would be saved placed on him. He bore it all. It crushed him. In the Old Testament, God had instructed the Jews to sacrifice animals to him as payment for their sins. And really, it was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that we've just witnessed this past Friday and we're relieved of this Sunday morn. In a sense, though, the sacrifice that God's people were commanded to make, it would, in a sense, cover the sins of the people. But the truth is that thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed. Again and again and again but the truth is that even though these lambs were sacrificed time and time, year after year, the work 
the forgiveness that that prefigured was only perpetuated as these lambs were sacrificed. And so we think of John declaring of Jesus when he sees him, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we think, why is he so special, a lamb? Well, we've already looked. He's a special lamb because he's sinless. And in the sacrificial system, you were not permitted to offer a lamb that had any blemish. It had to be a perfect lamb. And why? Because it prefigured the Son of God, the Lamb of God, that would give his life as a ransom for many. And so why is Jesus so special? Because he's the spotless lamb. Furthermore, why is Jesus so special? Because he's the effective lamb. Why? He is not a lamb that will just be one of many. He is the last of many. Never again will a lamb need to be sacrificed. Why? Because Jesus, when he had finished, when he declared that his work was done, post his resurrection, he ascended to the Father's right hand and he sits now having completed his work, and now, because of the cross, he makes intercession for his church. And so he's the spotless lamb that we see in the Old Testament. He's the effective lamb. He actually gets the job done. And not only is he the effective lamb, but he is the final lamb. How do we know that he is the final lamb? How do we know that heaven needed no more sacrifice? How do we know that the wrath of God truly was absorbed the cross, the third reason why I'm declaring to you this morning from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is special and unique is his resurrection. His resurrection, the third and final evidence of Jesus' unique situation in human history, his resurrection. And really that's why Mark shares it with us this morning. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Let's just work through it quickly. When the Sabbath was passed, this is Saturday was passed. It's now Sunday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He was buried Friday evening. We looked at that on Friday night as we gathered together. Crucified on Friday. Sabbath was Saturday, no work permitted to be done. That's why they rushed to bury him. And it says that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body there in that tomb. They had been there that night, that evening on Friday. They had seen where Jesus was laid. They saw the mode and method that he was wrapped and buried in. And they said, it's not good enough, not yet. Can't do it tonight. We'll come back Sunday. And we'll give Jesus the proper burial that he truly deserves. They come back. And what does it say? The very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day, we call it. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Well, again, they knew where the tomb was. Why? Because they had seen him laid there. Verse 3, they're saying to one another as they walk, who will roll away the stone? We saw just this past week. The verses prior to chapter 16, there at the end of 15, that Joseph, when they had finished their work with Jesus and buried him, Joseph himself rolled the stone down the track, covering Jesus' tomb. And these, young, these ladies are asking the question, who's going to roll a stone away for us? One man can roll it down the track, 
But three women cannot roll it up. Who will roll away the stone? Verse 4, it says, when they arrived looking up, they saw that the stone had in fact been rolled back. It had been rolled back. And it says it was very large. And they entered the tomb, and as they entered the tomb, it says they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. This description is not of any young man that I've seen in this church. Most of them couldn't last long in a white robe, right? For various reasons. I'm referencing wings and not their own sinfulness. This is a reference of an angel. And what does this angel say? As they're alarmed, do not be alarmed. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was in fact crucified. Not punished, not whipped, murdered. Life snuffed out. That's what it means to be crucified. And it says, he has risen. He is not here. See for yourself the place where they laid him. Look again at the place where they laid him. These ladies who would soon declare to the others, they're shocked and terrified in this moment. Mark makes it clear that the place where they saw Jesus laid that Friday night, the angel says, look again, this was the very place where you saw his body laid and the stole rolled in front as you peered from a distance. Look for yourselves. The grave clothes are there and they're wrapped and folded. Is this not where he was laid? You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Mark records for us briefly and simply that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. What are we to make of this this morning? What does this establish for us in regard to the special nature, the special place of Jesus in human history? The sacrificial system that God had put in place never satisfied his wrath against sin. Never. But when Jesus was sacrificed for our sins, he rose never to be sacrificed again. His resurrection establishes that he is the final spotless lamb. His resurrection proves for us that he truly did, in fact, satisfy the wrath of God, drink the entire cup, and rise from the dead. When we think of that empty tomb, I would encourage you to think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, which says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Let's flip that on its head. Flip it around and say it the other way. Since Christ has been raised, your faith is powerful and you are not in your sins. What's so special about Jesus? 
He's sinless. He's the spotless lamb of God. What's so special about Jesus? He absorbed the wrath of God. The wrath that God had for us, he absorbed it on behalf of his church. What's so special about Jesus? The resurrection establishes these two truths that we hold dear to be hope-filled and powerful. What's so special about Jesus? Here's the main idea. You've got it. Past the question, we want the answer. The resurrection establishes that Jesus, having never sinned, satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people. The resurrection establishes that Jesus, having never sinned, satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And so you might say, well, why, why do Christians wear bow ties and get all excited on Sunday mornings, especially on Easter? Well, you can celebrate it any way you like, but this is why we do that. Because when we consider the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, we realize though he never sinned, he satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of me, on behalf of the saints of Hagerstown Church and the saints of all other churches locally and universal. This is what he's done. And so we celebrate. If we were sinless, we would not celebrate. If he were not sinless, we would not celebrate. If we would take upon the Father's wrath upon ourselves, we would be in despair. We would not celebrate. If he had not taken the Father's wrath for us, we would not celebrate. But he did. He did those things. And the resurrection establishes. It proves this for us. And therefore, we as a church, we celebrate. I want to ask you a question as we come to a close. Did you ever notice the stone was rolled away? Of course you did, but did you ever notice why it was rolled away? You see, Jesus in his glorified state, in his risen state, with that body that we will have who are in Christ, he didn't need the stone to be rolled away so that he could get out. He wasn't resurrected and then beating on the, the door, hoping that somebody could push the stone out of the way. That's not why the stone was moved. Well, you say, well, why was the stone moved? The stone was not moved so Jesus could get out. The stone was moved so that you could peer in. And when you peer in, what does it do for you? It establishes, it confirms in your heart that truly he was sinless and truly he satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Maybe this morning, you've been there. Maybe you, like me, have peered in the tomb. And you've seen long ago, the resurrected, resurrected Lord has satisfied the wrath of God, and he himself was sinful or sinless. Maybe that's you. But maybe this morning for the first time, as the Spirit of God knocks on your heart, he's saying, peer in the tomb. I roll it back for you. Just go ahead and take a look inside and see that he is not there. He is risen. I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this morning this glorious truth 
The resurrection establishes, it proves for us, it gives us a confidence that though Jesus never sinned, he did in fact satisfy your righteous wrath that you had for us. He drank it all. He satisfied it. And so, Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this gospel that you've given to us, that though we are dead in our sins, we are alive in Christ if we, if we place our faith in you. Father, we pray that in the six days to follow, before we gather again to celebrate once again the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Father, we pray that we'll be held fast by this truth, that you have no more wrath for us. You have only love and mercy. Father, we thank you for rolling the stone away, the stone of our hearts, And we pray this morning that you would continue to do that work in those who are gathered with us. Father, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, the one who is worthy. Amen.